Hello everyone and welcome to another issue of Cane and Rinse. Um, in this issue, issue 333, uh, we will be covering Valkyria Chronicles. But before we get on to that game, play along with the show. Um, upcoming issues include uh, Resogun, Ghosts and Goblins... Resident Evil 4, the uh, the first time that we've covered a game again on Kane and Rince. Um, Def Jam Fight for uh, New York and Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. Uh, please head over to the website kaneandrince.com where you will find all our podcasts and interesting articles and pieces. Um, if you feel like giving something back to the podcast, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Rents. Um, a little donation every month um, helps us keep the lights on. Um, you'll also get access to um, uh, Jay and uh, Leon's subscriber-only uh, podcast. Um, you'll also get early access to the console specials. Um, so you'll get access to those um, uh, before anyone else, um, and you'll also get early access to all of the uh, Cane and Rinse podcasts. Um, please also check out Sound of Play, um, sister podcast to uh, Cane and Rinse, um, where we talk about all our favourite video game music. And of course, subscribe, review and rate us on your podcast app of choice and, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Um, so joining me, Joshua Garrity, in issue 333 are Mikhail Croder. Ah, that's the boss! And Simon Cole. I'm not even going to attempt to follow that. Hi. <laughs> So, um, we will be discussing Valkyria Chronicles. This is a tactics RPG um, with third-person shooter-inspired mechanics on the ground. Um, this was developed by Sega, or at least the original PS3 version was developed by Sega. Um, Little Stone Software handled the PC conversion, and then Media Vision handled the PS4 remaster. Um, this is, of course, published by Sega. Um, so I think the two key names that keep cropping up um, with Valkyria Chronicles, uh, and apologies again for my pronunciation, I'm notorious for my Japanese pronunciation, um, but uh, Shuntaru Tanaka, um, who was heavily involved in the Sakura, Sakura Wars series and also um, Skies of Arcadia, and uh, Ryotaru Nonaka, who was also heavily involved in the Sakura Wars series, but also a game called Nightshade. The composer of this game is Hitoshi Sakamoto, um, who seems to be really in love with composing for tactics games because uh, his portfolio includes games like uh, Final Fantasy Tactics, Tactics Ogre, Let Us Cling Together, uh, Final Fantasy Twelve, just veering into JRPGs there, and... Um, pretty much all of the Valkyria Chronicle games, um, including the one that's yet to be released uh, as of this recording, Valkyria Chronicles 4. 
just to talk about um, some of the ideas that went into the development of this game. Um, so this were, this information came about from a uh, oneup.com interview with Ryotaro Nonaka, um, and that was uh, done by Jeremy Parrish. Um, so the game's development team consisted mainly of staff that had been involved in the Sakura Wars series, led by producer Ryotaro um, Nonaka and director Shintaro Tanaka. Um, together they desired to create a game that combined facets of their previous works, uh, strategy elements uh, from the Sakura Wars series, uh, third-person action elements from uh, Nanaka's Nightshade, and role-playing influence from uh, Tanaka's Skies of Arcadia. So basically it, the, the, the goal for this was to be a melting pot of all of the uh, team members' previous work on, on those series. So in terms of releases, um, this was first um, an ex a, you know temporary exclusive for the PlayStation 3, um, released in Japan April 24th, 2008, um, in the UK October 31st, 2008, and then in the US, um, a rare occasion where um, we got it before the US, um, November 4th, uh, 2008. So the PC version came out worldwide uh, November the 11th, 2014. Um, and then the PlayStation 4 remaster um, came out in Japan February 10th, 2016. I keep saying the UK. I, I, I think where I got this information from, it said the UK. I'm assuming this is the EU, um, but uh, the EU May 17th, uh, 2016, and then in uh, North America, May uh, also May 17th, 2016. Um, a Nintendo Switch version has been announced for Japan, um, I don't think there's any word on whether it will release in the rest of the world, but seeing as Valkyria Chronicles 4 is releasing in, uh, on Switch in the EU and US territories, um, I assume that that announcement will uh, soon follow. Um, so reviews for the game at the time, this um, so for the PS3 version, which was back in 2008, was very positive, um, garnering an 86 um, out of 100 on Metacritic. And then the later PC and PS4 reviews were similarly rewarded with positive reviews with 85 out of 100 for both platforms. Um, however, um, and this is kind of why this game has become a bit of a cult classic rather than um, one that a lot of people have played. The sales for this game, that, that may have changed now with the PC, we'll get onto this in a bit, but this probably has changed now with the PC and PS4 release. Um, but originally the Valkyria Chronicles um, did not sell very well. Um, so this is according to Kotaku, the PS3 version of the game only sold... Um, 33,000 copies in the US as of November 2008. It was only the 93rd best-selling game in Japan that year, um, 589,000 copies. 
Um, however, according to Game Informer, um, the 2014 PC release performed above expectations, topping the Steam sales charts on the day of its release. And some important context, the latest entries in the Call of Duty and Assassin's Creed series had recently been released too. So it had some competition, but it managed to hold the top spot at least for a little bit. Um, as of 2017, the PC uh, release has sold uh, 925,000 units, uh, likely many more now um, as of uh, recording. Um, it is speculated that the success of the PC version directly led to work on the remaster for PS4 and uh, Valkyria Chronicles 4. So now I'd like to issue our spoiler warning. There is a lot of narrative, there's spoilers and blah, blah, blah in Valkyria Chronicles. If you're very sensitive to uh, narrative details, I would stop the podcast now and finish Valkyria Chronicles because we will not hold back. It's only, so, uh, uh, it's only about fifty <laughs> hours of playtime, so just do it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you should do it in an afternoon. Um, so, um, I'd like to start with our histories uh, on Valkyria Chronicles. So, I'd like to start with Simon. Yeah, I came to the game relatively late because I was not a PS3 owner until uh, late 2012. But I'd seen this when it came out. I was quite interested in the background to the game, um, particularly the Skies of Arcadia Link. I was a big fa- fan of that game, particularly the GameCube uh, version. And when I finally got my PS3, this was the first game that I bought along with uh, Nino Kuni. I played this one first and before Nino Kuni and it blew me away. <laughs> uh, and I've consequently gone on to play two on the PSP and the third game as well, which are different. But I've not played any the remaster i think probably get onto it but i didn't really think it needed remastering it's a beautiful game in its own right and i've not played the other game just because it looked terrible so yeah it was i came to it late um but i'm glad i did finally come to it cool mckeel yeah i wasn't expecting this but my uh, story sort of echoes simon's uh i also came to this game late but maybe a little bit later even so I think I first found out about this game uh, due to a review by Classic Game Room, Room on YouTube and it looked right up my alley so I enthusiastically looked it up and it turned out it was a PS3 exclusive and at that time I only had a Wii and an Xbox 360 uh, as far as current cons- consoles went. So I just put it on the list for if I would ever get a PS3 uh, which I eventually did in 2016. <laughs> and you know, uh, by that time, of course, the uh, the PC version had come out, was already out for two years, and it had been sitting on my Steam wish list for, uh, for, uh, since 2014. But it was always pretty pricey, you know, how it goes on Steam. You wait for things to, co- to come down in sale, and then if, if you can actually afford to spend some money on, ge- on games that, that month's, uh, month, you get it. So by the time I, the time I got my PS3, I figured it would be a nice uh, little title to buff up my... PS3 console library, uh, so I picked it up for the PS3 instead uh, for relatively cheap. I think I start I, I started playing quite uh, quickly, but I had too many other games to play as well, so I didn't go- get very far in it. So of course I was uh, I, I really liked uh, what I what I've played from it, and when it was listed for for this year, I was uh, quick to jump on it. 
I I actually uh, bought this quite close to release on on PS3. Um, so I was kind of holding out on the <laughs> next generation um, at that point in time. Um, I was waiting for one of the consoles to um, ha- basically have enough must-have titles for me to justify the purchase. Um, and around the time Metal Gear Solid 4 came out, um, uh, which was the same year, um, I was like, right, we've got Valkyria Chronicles, we've got um, Metal Gear Solid 4, we've got another game that I've forgotten what it was, um, but there was definitely another one. Um, maybe it was Ratchet and Clank, I don't know. I can't remember now. Um, Army but, of Two? Um, no, it wasn't Army of Two. Right. Um, <laughs> Might be Unchar- Uncharted. Oh yeah, no, yeah, I think it was Uncharted. You're right. Uh, I think you're right. Um, so yeah, I I bought. I think it was Uncharted and Metal Gear Solid Four in a bundle with a PS3, and then I bought Valkyria Chronicles separately. And yeah, I I uh, I will talk about this, um, but it's no secret that I really like this game. Um, and I've played it several times um, since release. Um, I played the PS3 version. So, you know, I I was 18 when uh, uh, this game originally came out, so I had wow. infinitely infinitely more uh, time on my hands than I do now. Um, you, you might have uh, had a, a much more refined taste in gaming than I did when I was 18. Um, not really. I thought Metal Gear Solid 4 had a great story at the time. Right. Um, <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, um, yeah, I, I played through it several times um, on PS3. Um, since then, um, I haven't uh, completed the PC version, but I have gotten a fair chunk of the way through the PC version just to remind myself um, of the general flow of the game um yeah and i did go on to um play valkyria chronicles 2 on the psp but i never completed it and i i hate to be this guy but it was mainly because of the aesthetic um i so much of my and and we'll get on to this um so much of my affection for valkyria chronicles um is because of the way it looks um, and uh, the PSP entries. Uh, I never played three, but two definitely kind of dropped the watercolour sketchbook aesthetic in favour of a more traditional anime um, aesthetic, and um, it just didn't really work for me. Um, even though a lot of the things that make this game good still were still present, I just I, I didn't push through to the end, unfortunately with that one okay then let's um set the scene um it is 1935 ec do do either of you know what ec stands for doesn't quite pop in my mind right now no (laughs) no neither do i i was just checking uh no i was just checking i was i I might have known once yeah um (laughs) So, uh, yes, it's 1935 EC, um, and um, the world we enter into is very much a World War II-inspired fantasy landscape. The Second World War is referred to as the Second 
European war um, in this context. Um, so the the two main forces coming to conflict with each other are the Empire, which is very much um, taking inspiration from the Axis powers, specifically Nazi Germany, um, and then the Federation, um, which again is taking a lot of influence from the Allied forces. I also want to note that I find it deeply funny that Britain is called the Kingdom of Edinburgh, because to me that says that Scotland were the ones who took over the island instead of England, and I secretly want to live in that universe. Um, so... Um, and um, the main source of contention um, uh, amongst these powers is a resource called Ragnite, which is this multi-purpose um, energy source that's used to power vehicles, it's used in medicine, etc., etc., etc. And um, the country that um, this game, Valkyria Chronicles, is focused on is the country of Gallia, um, which to me is like an amalgamation of the uh, countries in the Benelux region, so Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. I think having the, the that kind of mixture of German, French, and just those mixture of names, I think, feels quite authentic to that area of the world, though, where the language is... You have Germany and you have France, and then the people, the countries caught between, are kind of swapping between those languages. I'm, I, you know, I may be wrong here, but um, that's the impression I get is yeah. that mm. yeah, um, it's fun. it's it's a really funny fantasy universe because it's so familiar at the same time, but it's also a yeah. bit alien because the empire is indeed uh, meant to signify either Nazi Germany or Germany in the First World War under the emperor. Uh, of kind of a mixture of both really and then but they seem to hail from a, a region on a map that's close to russia yeah it it tries to kind of amalgamate like all the great um enemies in you know quotation marks of european history into kind of this one force so it's like it's both soviet russia and nazi germany and you know mm so many other um you know fascist regimes that have existed in Europe and all kind of twisted together and you and I, and I think there's you know you could make an argument that that's kind of you know lacking tact in some ways um yeah i think the i think japanese game developers have got a history of riffing on that yeah. type of thing i know i didn't even ever played under defeat it's a shop yeah. that was yeah that had a Similar kind of aesthetic in the it, it played on the whole um, World War Two thing, but that way that's where you actually played as what were essentially the Nazis. I, I love that game though. It is a great game. Um, I think they, I, th I think the aesthetic of that era is quite resonant with the with Japanese developers, particularly like the uniforms and things like that. I mean, when you look at the the enemies in this or the the baddies, so to speak, they the, the whole sort of martial aesthetic is quite strong. Yeah, and the the Emperor Maximilian looks uh, like uh, your archetypical Ubermensch, you know, yeah. your Aryan overlord. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it, his his design in particular is really interesting because it is like very much, mm. you know, as you say, Aryan influence, but also it, he looks like a Roman emperor as yeah. well. So it's with a golden, again, golden like laurel, that. and and, yeah. he, and he looks like almost the ideal of a. a a beautiful prince uh, in white, uh, you know, dressed in white garb, like in fairy tales, he would be 
the 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 story's hero, but there yeah. you can immediately tell from his face uh, and the design of this character that mm. yeah, there's something very dark and twisted about him. Yeah, and and you compare that to Welkin's design, where he's got grey hair and yeah. his physique is very unassuming. Mm. And um, I I do wonder if the developers very de- you know were deliberately trying to say something there of like the power of the of the you know the underdog, the the person who doesn't look like they're a superhero actually being quite powerful mm. um there's like a samwise gamgee thing there where you know he's the real hero of the lord, the lord of the rings not aragorn or gandalf yeah. or anyone like that yeah, it's, so. it's it's kind of the story's moral jumping ahead in a, in a sense because you know that's what welkin tells uh, some of the major characters at one point like you've come to rely on these powers mm. but yeah. that's not where mankind's real power lies um we we, we were talking about the the kind of Aryan Nazi influence of the Empire. I think it's important to bring up um, the Darksons, which I think is, it's not even subtext. Mm. It's pretty much uh, very blatant, um, uh, <laughs> sim- you know, metaphor for um, the treatment of Jewish people during World War Two. So I'll, I'll lay out my thoughts and I'll let you guys talk. But I, I kind of go back and forth on how I feel about the this um, part of the game. In some ways, I think actually it handles it pretty well. Um, one of the things that I really respect about the game is that it was willing to show that the Allied forces uh, forces mm. had these same uh, prejudices. Views. Yeah, yeah, that it wasn't just oh, it was the you know it was the Nazis and they were the bad guys and. They're the ones who did it. Now, actually, you know, in America, in the UK, in much of Western Europe, we were having the same mm. conversations. It was just the Nazi party did it first. Um, and having, you know, characters like Rosie um, actually be outwardly, um, you know, prejudiced towards Darkson's, that, that, that struck me as someone who'd done their reading, basically, mm. who'd yeah. actually looked at history rather than the popular version of history. Yeah. But then it can get heavy-handed, and mm. I, I feel like this game does have a bit of a tone problem with, with this subject matter. Yeah, I'd go along with that. I think there were a few things I thought, oh, I'm glad they've had a go at this, but then on reflection I thought, mm, you know, is it easy for me to look at, look at it as, you know, a straight white person and go, yeah, well done for doing that, but not really <laughs> considering <Yeah>. how <laughs> people, uh, you know... Other people might feel about it. It's a similar thing with the some of the other characters that you recruit, um, you know, who belong to minority groups. It's like, yeah, it's great they've included them, but their depiction may, maybe isn't um, is maybe a bit too cartoonish, and they, you know, yeah. they overplay the camp at certain points. Uh, Absolutely, and I think it, you know, it's the same with this. Um, <clears throat> while it works on some levels, um, it can be jarring <laughs> on others. So if we get into specifics, uh, Josh and Simon, what what parts did you feel uh, where the the tone sort of derailed? I think, broadly speaking, in the game as a whole, I felt that, you know, this is quite a serious um, plot uh, that's quite dry. Yeah, it's peppered with um, some sort of outrageously camp characters. And in... (laughs) 
in the instance of the, sort of the, the racial tensions, um, it felt like sometimes you'd have a bit where there was, uh, they kind of said, look, this is the um, issues that these people are facing with, as far as you know, being prejudiced against. And then suddenly you flip to one of the other characters being, you know, camp about vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah. I, I, I yeah. think for me, like, I, I want to be clear. I don't, I don't think the, the game um again i'm speaking from you know white straight male perspective i don't think it mm. veers into full kind of a f- it never gets offensive for me it's mm. it's one it's one of tact really like i think it's hearts in the right place mm. um throughout um yeah. but there are some occasions where like for example mm. when they come back to the camp and it's burnt down and then they do the Disney animated film thing of having a burnt doll in the ashes. Uh-huh. And it's just a bit like, come on, guys. <laughs> um, and then um, and then later on, they have this conversation about racism. <laughs> and like Welkin's talking about, there's so many different varieties of butterfly, <laughs> but they're all beautiful. <laughs> I'm just like... Yeah, but that, that's I, the my... message. Here, the message here is positive, but what? You, why are we comparing different races to the world to different species of butterfly? I think it's I a think bit there's silly. there's two key points. I think, and this sounds a bit reductive, yeah. but um, this is um, a story written by a Japanese author about uh, a, a conflict in history that's quite far away, and it's not as close. Probably not as close to the uh, uh, um, as a historic historic collective memory as it is to us. Uh, and I think the other thing is that to to me it came across as a wonderfully naive fantasy. <laughs> That's probably not at all realistic, but yeah, it's, it, there was just a, I found a quite charming. Uh, naivety to the to the whole story. Yeah, and like yeah. Josh says, I think its heart is in the right place and is well meaning. Yeah, that's that's. I, I think I think the whole thing is is kind of heartfelt. Yeah, I mean, you don't know what's lost in translation, um, literally with the translation from Japanese to True. English as well. Yeah. I want us to talk about um, uh, the characters in more detail, um, but before we do that, um, I just want to read this post from uh, Steve Aran. Uh, from the forum. I believe that the main reason I have a problem with Valkyria Chronicles is the conflict of tone. I feel this game never really decides whether it wants to be a fantastical epic or a serious commentary on the horrors of war. Whilst I understand what they were trying to do with the Darkson allegory, I personally found the Thousand mission to be in extremely bad taste. Oh, and whilst we're on the subject of the personally offensive, I'd like to single out the entire character, or rather caricature, of Jan. I mean, really? It wasn't okay in 2008, and it's certainly not okay now. To continue moaning, I found plot elements to be introduced and then resolved with inordinate haste, meaning that the player never really has the time to adapt to any new information or appreciate the raising of the stakes. Did anybody really feel that the giant lance in the castle was an important war-ending device until it was decided it was in the cutscene before you had to destroy it? If elements had have been foreshadowed and characters given a little more depth, 
rather than you having to buy backstory, I may have hated the villains and loved the heroes a little more. But to be honest, apart from Rosie, who I can only remember as the sexy racist, a phrase I never thought I'd say, I can't remember any of the characters really having a dramatic arc. Having completed the game a month ago, all I can recall is that the bearded lancer likes vegetables, the captain likes nature, and one of the girls wants to run a bakery. These are characteristics, not characters. I had more of a personal connection with one of my scouts who, due to her particular set of perks, would often mess up a fight by wilting under the pressure. To give credit where it is due, the game actually does a pretty decent job of telling a meta-story within the battles due to its mechanics, but the main story, the first of an epic chronicle, definitely needed a few more hours in the oven. So I was watching this um, uh, video uh, analysis piece by a critic called Patrick H. Willems, and he was talking about flat character arcs. Um, And he was basically challenging the idea that a lead character needed to have an arc uh, of change in order to be a successful character and a successful story. He brought up several examples, but one of the examples he uh, brought up was um, the Winter Soldier, um, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, where he said, look, the lead character knows what's right He knows what should be done right from the very beginning of the movie. What's wrong is that the world is wrong. Everything around him is wrong. And that's what needs to change. And so for me, like, I see Welkin as that. Like, he's the character who's been through whatever change that needed to happen to make him a better person already before the start of the plot. He, Welkin, is a good man. He is a good man in a horrible world. And what needs to change is that this good man needs to make the world less horrible. And for me, that was compelling. Um, I love Welkin. Like, I love him so much he's one of my favorite um protagonists in this kind of um (laughs) tactics games more so than you know any fire emblem game that i've played Mm. and a lot of it is just that he's so genuine and like he's a little bit nerdy but not in a way that's like irritating but he's passionate about things like nature and and just living life yeah. and, and and again that's that's very charming also how that sort of informs a lot of his tactics yeah exactly and he stands in stark contrast to and and Simon will know this um having played as many JRPGs as he has to all of the brooding negative teenage boys that you encounter um in in that genre Welkin is just this just well of positivity and even when things get their darkest and he is he is you know visibly impacted by mm. um you know the the probably the most sad event of this game is is Sara um yeah. who's his adopted sister passing it it really has an impact on him but he picks himself up and he knows he needs to still be that positive example for the rest of his troops and yeah, I love same, him. same when uh, Alicia is shot and he's very distraught yeah. and Largo and Rosie are commenting on how the boss is uh, losing the plot but he, do- but he doesn't really lose the plot actually he just soldiers on with the next mission and you know and you control yeah. him so mm. you know you you're, you are, as the player are there to make sure 
yeah, make sure everything uh, runs smoothly. <laughs> Are there any other favorite characters that kind of um, strike you guys? Yeah, the vegetable man, Largo. <laughs> <laughs> Largo. The funny thing is, I had one of my main shock troopers was Jane, and it's fun. The, of course, your 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 squad picks. They don't really have they they don't play a larger part of the story, but yeah, they they tell their little plots through the character bios that you can look up and that uh, develop a little bit more, and by the the way they act on the field and their little descriptions, um, and it's it's funny because my son he's eight year old years old now and he's like ah girls are stupid and this and that, but he was watching me play and she quickly became his uh, favorite character because she was just that badass just running yeah. across the field and. She's she her uh, uh, one of her characteristics is that she's an impater, which which is very uh, practical because you'll be fighting Imperials most of the time in the game. So she she was easily picked for for uh, a lot of operations, and she's just running around yelling "Die, die, die!" <laughs> and being super aggressive and very effective at her job as well as a shock trooper. Uh, yeah, that was one of uh, my son's favorite characters. I I was a big fan of Jane as well. Yeah. I always partnered uh, uh, Rosie and Jane together as because yeah. I just pictured those two would get on really well. Yeah, yeah, um, they were like they were in the barracks, murder, so. murder machines, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and exactly. and the funny thing is, we looked up Jane's story also in their uh, bio in the personnel tab, and apparently the reason why she hates Imperial so much, she's from the town of Brule, like uh, Alicia and Welkin. The reason why she hates them so much is because they destroyed her flower shop. Wow. <laughs> Turned into a murderous... That's all it, that's all it took. She, yeah. was, she, she was just happily selling sunflowers and then... Yeah, and then she turned into a murderous sadist. War makes monsters of us all. Yep. Simon, any favorites on your side? I'm going to be pretty controversial and say that I liked Jan or Jan, however you wanted to say it. But the caveat to that is I appreciate that he could probably be seen as quite offensive to some people. Um, the reason that I liked him was just because you didn't really get characters like that in video games usually. I thought he was different. I, but, I mean, I was the game I was playing. Um, I think it was um, XCOM. And that felt extremely dry. Uh, and it was really hard to get attached to any of the um, any of the characters at all. Your squad felt really puddle deep, you know, was, they were just names. Um, and whilst Jan or Jan is potentially quite a, an offensive character in some ways, I thought he was a good sort of poster child for what I loved about Valkyria Chronicles, and that is the outrageousness of the characters and the way that their characteristics linked into sort of gameplay elements, things like the fact that they had. Um, hay fever allergies and things like that, and uh, sometimes that would affect how you and it would affect how you link. They linked up with other people, and the game I think did a sort of a similarly good job was probably um, uh, Fire Emblem Awakening, uh, in that you actually had to sit and think about oh, who would who would actually who would get on, you know, who would uh, probably go out for a beer or you know go and do something ever who would who would really not like each other because I think when I replayed it, I tried to sort of put together contrasting characters. Um, just to see what would happen, um, but yeah, I I appreciate that he like on reflection, he is problematic, um, but at the time of playing, um, I got quite attached to him, and um, I'm not going to lie about that. <laughs> yeah, I've never I've never picked him. I st- stuck very close to a specific set of characters. 
some other characters so that we've got the supporting cast and the villains as well um i did want to touch on maximilian we 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 did um discuss him briefly up top i i don't think he's a very good villain um for all the 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 praise i would give this game for its characters i think the main antagonist um is pretty limp um he's just kind of a mustache twirling bad guy um in in some ways like what 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 else are you expecting from the uh the head of the ultimate amalgamation of every uh villain from mm. you know world war Two villains he he wasn't really a, conf- uh, a compelling presence but selveria is that yeah. how you pronounce it she was she was much more interesting and i, I wish the like she does get a lot of airtime, but I wish that she had been much more of the focus than she ended up being. Yeah, if that makes any sense. She was really intriguing as a character. Mm. I wondered what her motivations were, and I felt it was a bit banal in the end. Uh, she 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 just she just loved Ma- loved Maximilian. That was it. That was why she was. Uh, mm. Yeah, she was. Uh, yeah. Doing what she was doing. She's terrifying when she turns up uh, in the in game. I, I always dread her appearing. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's part of the part of why I wish because they the the game actually gives you more reason to be intimidated by her, not only by you know cutscenes but like in game as you say like she's an intimidating force on the battlefield, and even though her motivations as you say McGill are pretty limp. She, you just feel that power emanating from her yeah. a lot more than Maximilian, who feels like you could snap him with a stiff breeze. Um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, it's it's not a huge problem for me because, as Simon has already said, like so much of the appeal of the game is just the ensemble. Like, um, like Guardians of the Galaxy has a similar problem where the main villain of that film is pretty boring, but it doesn't matter because. That's not why you're watching the film, um, and I think that's the yeah, same I, case here. I do feel that most of the villains um, have at least a few redeeming uh, qualities, and it's quite interesting. They they are at least have at least a few gray areas. Like if you played the bonus mission uh, in which you storm a mm. house in which hostages are kept by this really that's a real nefarious mustache mustache twirling torturer of a, of a villain and uh, you arrest the, the guy who was uh, w- who wanted to have his way with the hostages in a very sadistic manner he's actually being exchanged for a prisoner with maximilian but by the, by the time when he's happily arriving there uh he's being ordered death by firing squad by maximilian for uh torturing civilians on the other hand you also have the one of the generals uh, is he a general he's a general right gregor yeah, like you, he, he looks like an awful villain, and um, when you meet him in the woods, he's actually very appreciative of Welkin and Alicia taking care of this, uh, yeah, that soldier that he mm. uh, that he knew. But then again, in Thousand, it turns out he's running this <laughs> this camp of uh, darks and slaves in a very sadistic manner. So there's there's a lot of these these sort of grace, you know, which yeah, it, it goes it goes a bit beyond pure cartooniness. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, and um, uh, one one other character that I think um, kind of plays into some of the themes of the the game yeah. is Cordelia, <laughs> um, who's the leader of Gallia. Um, I think 
how do you, I mean, how did you two feel about the revelation that she was actually a dark sun? It c- kind of came out of nowhere for me, but I, mm-hmm. I don't know how you two felt about it. Yeah, it came out of nowhere. And I think, imagine living in the universe that the game portrays. It might be uh, super shocking. Uh, but from, yeah. from us outsiders looking into this fantasy universe, I don't think it was as impactful maybe as it could have been. I think the first time I played it, I completely missed that. And it was only the second second playthrough. I was like, oh, right, okay. Uh, it, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It just was like, whoa, okay. It feels like they needed enough. So, like, the one of the big revelations of this game is that Alicia is one of the Valkyra. Um, she's um, she has the blood of the Valkyra in her, and she's able to wield these ancient weapons. Um, um, that at that point um, only um, Silvara had been able to wield, and that that has weight. That that revelation yeah. feels powerful. Um, but then it feels like they throw this in, and it re- honestly, it, apart from the kind of commentary of, "Oh, you you hated Darksons? Well, guess what? You, you know the leader of your country has been a Darkson all along." Apart from that, it really doesn't impact the plot. And she's been silently condoning Darkson hatred. Yeah, that's the other thing. <laughs> <laughs> she actually remarks yeah. upon that as well. That's uh, she's terribly ashamed of that and the, yeah th- what you also mentioned the uh, alicia's uh, plot uh, awakening as as a uh, valkyria as they call it i sort of saw that coming from uh, a, ch- a few chapters before that already with faldio's uh, traveling around and machinations you mentioned faldio i he seems like um he'd be the protagonist in any other uh, jrpg um like yeah. his design and everything he's notice you know he's designed to be cooler than welkin he's like his he's a bit he's a bit like a a milder version of squall isn't he yeah yeah he's not quite as um moody or broody as squall he's he's still upbeat maybe not as upbeat as welkin is he still has a bit of an edge to him um but yeah it was quite he's quite fun as a cat i like um that there's this point in the narrative where the Federation are kind of cozying up to Galia. Yeah. And he's like, this is all garbage. And he just walks out <laughs> of the room. So it's like, yeah, I, I, I have no time for all this nonsense. And I, yeah. I really respect him for that. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And Welkin's clearly not having a good time. But Welkin never being, you know, the polite boy that he is, yeah. um, decides He'd, to stay. To stay, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. Despite us really picking apart parts of the story, I genuinely enjoyed it. Even though, again, I don't think it's uh, anything earth-shattering, but it's uh, it rolled al- along the the game rather nicely, and I definitely, yeah, it was. I find found, found it quite charming, uh, all in all. Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't drag. That's the main thing. It, it serves its purpose. I mean, you, you play <laughs> you play some JRPGs, and you just wonder what you're doing with your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the 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 pacing is something that I would commend mm. with Valkyria Chronicles is that it just it just and part of that is to do with the structure of the game mm. being um you know presented as this book um with chapters on each major event of the um Squad 7's kind of campaign. Um but yeah, it just moves. It just moves along really well um and it doesn't linger. Mm. Right, I just want to cap off the conversation about um, uh, story and characters with this post from the emailer. 
The story was an unusual take on World War II, with the melodramatic anime style sometimes jarring with the serious subject matter and sometimes being quite affecting. I ended up caring about the characters of your unit more than the overall plot, both the voice-acted ones and the squaddies with their personality traits. I find this style of storytelling, focusing on the soldiers rather than the war itself, more compelling, and I found the game succeeded here. Now we're going to move on to the uh, aesthetic of the game. Um, but before we talk about our opinions, I just want to use this post from uh, the magical isopod as a jumping off point. Something that really strikes me about the art style and something I don't see talked about often is how it captures a certain snapshot of post-World War II Japanese art. The anime influence is obvious, but what I don't see brought up is what I perceive to be a clear influence of illustrations of war machines and technology, the kind that you might see in textbooks or enthusiast books on the topic. I think a deliberate allusion to this is protagonist Welkin's penchant for drawing the scenes of combat he encounters in-game, a nod to the Japanese artists of the past who rendered sketches of these tools of war in loving detail. To me, the sketchbook look to the cell shading and the turning of pages to transition chapters is meant to emulate the experience of flipping through a young adult guide to the technology of war, imagining seeing this equipment in person, or perhaps even dreaming up their own machines. When I look at a lot of Japanese concept art from the 80s and 90s, especially for games that heavily feature machines or vehicles. Iron Hander is a big one that comes to mind for me. I see a very strong influence from these military books detailing tanks and planes and ships, the same kind many kids can find in their school libraries. I'd also like to spotlight the soundtrack from the great Hitoshi Sakamoto, who also worked on Tactics Ogre, Radiant Silver Gun, and the aforementioned Final Fantasy Tactics. His style here perfectly captures the tone of each moment as it ought to, and it really elevates a great experience to even greater heights. Um, Makio, out of the three of us, uh, you are the newest to Valkyria Chronicles. Um, how do you feel about the aesthetic of the game, and do you feel like it holds up in 2018, a whole 10 years later? Very much so. I think it's beautiful. I think just in general, the mood that this game conveys, uh, disregarding the, the, the sketchy... The, the <laughs> sketchy is not the right word. The, the, uh, the pencil sketch, the pencil-shaded look... The general mood that it conveys is very, you know, the pastel colors, the, the watercolors, even though it's uh, a story in a larger frame about the horrors of war, it sort of gives off a, a dreamy mood almost, uh, which which is really fitting with the protagonists of Welkin and, uh, and Alicia and their, again, their naivety. Yeah, and I think it, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful looking game and... There's also this, what I really came to love throughout the game, the way it uh, developed was this, this increasingly arcane, uh, complex, humongous, monstrous looking machines <laughs> that were just like yeah. amazingly designed. And then the twisty and turny 
motifs of the the uh, Val uh, Valkyrian weapons, uh, the the lances and the shields and everything. It's uh, very striking. I found all in all. Yeah, I think it's pretty timeless looking, really. I'd probably say it's one of the most beautiful video games ever made, without sound too hyperbolic. That particular generation of consoles, I'd probably say there's stuff like that and El Shaddai that will probably look as good in 10 years' time as they did when they came out. I think that kind of the watercolour uh, stuff, it it made me think that, you know, we were looking into, years after this had happened, looking into uh, Welkin's um, sort of diaries and sketchbooks and sort of recounting what happened from that. Uh, that's what I got from it. But yeah, it's beautiful. Like when they did the um, when they did the remastered version, I was just trying to get scratch yeah. thinking like, how do you make this look more beautiful other than you know make it run a bit better? Because it is like you know, I'm sure yeah. like this has been said a million times on this <laughs> on this on Kane and Rince that good art direction trumps everything else when it comes to graphics. In you can in. In, in 10 years' time, I'm sure there'll be a console that is, uh, you know, 20, 30 times more powerful than the PS3, but I'm sure that 75% or more games on that will look a lot uglier than this. <laughs> yeah, it's a, strength, a very strong leading motif, the, the whole sketchbook thing, mm. and it's very quickly introduced in the, maybe the opening uh, scenes where Welkin is sitting by uh, by the waterside and, uh, and and sketching some scenes of nature. Carried all the way through, yeah, and just beautiful, really. I I for me, like this is you know in that canon of games like Wind Waker, where it's basically been put in a time capsule and it will never age because of the the choices. Um, that the art directors made, like I, like you know, playing it now, like and and also you know, playing the demo of Valkyria Chronicles Four. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Valkyria Chronicles Four looks exactly the same as the original Valkyria Chronicles, as far as I can tell, in terms of like fidelity of detail and all of that stuff. But it doesn't matter. You could totally release a, a game in the Valkyria Chronicles series ten years later that looks exactly the same as the first one, and no one will notice because the first one looked just looked that beautiful um like it, it doesn't need updating it wouldn't be um it wouldn't be improved if the grass was more detailed or something like that there's something um uniquely powerful about watching um a cutscene where it pans over the landscape and it looks like you know one of the it looks like a ghibli cartoon but with a unique aesthetic you know um it it's really really astounding stuff um and i think you know a lot of attention gets paid to art direction and little attention is paid to animation um i think the animation in this game is incredible as well um, just the way characters emote and um, express, yeah. express themselves. One of, one of my favourite things about this game is the little speech that Welkin does to his troops before the beginning of any mission and the just the camera choices of just like like you know really selling the authority and and power of this moment and then yeah. the pan back when he says squad seven move out yeah and he, he um, points to he points forwards yeah, like a classic yeah. military commander it's it's really really strong the music as well is fantastic yeah. um it's very very like it's obvious where its influences are. Like it's very much drawing from you know classic 
ideas of what kind of war movie music is you know should be that being said like it still manages to carve out an identity all its own um, it's still very distinctly Valkyria Chronicles, despite those obvious influences. Um, and I think a lot of the battle scenes um, in particular are really sold by that music. And, and also some of the more subtle scenes, just like the there's a cut scene where it's literally just watching a petal from a flower leave Alicia's hand. And um, and just the music there is really powerful and potent. And I think, yeah, that if if there's one thing in this game that I think is just without flaw for me, it's the aesthetic. It's just perfect for me. Mm. Going back to the um, music, when I played it, I had flashbacks to Tactics Ogre, which is one of my favourite games of all time. Uh, he he kind of plays the plays the same trick with that, where there's there's a lot of overtly martial themes you know it's very warlike uh, and it really adds gravitas to the to the storyline i think it's not overly bombastic in the if you compare it to um some jrpgs in recent memory something like lost odyssey where there is some really sort of overwrought music in that uh, whereas this it kind of it, it felt sort of serious in tone without being over the top there are very few gaming soundtracks I would listen to outside of playing the game, and this is probably one of them. I can't get the title theme out of my head. <laughs> it's been uh, yeah. ingrained in my mind, especially, of course, I've been playing it pretty intensively over the past couple of days. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a mainstay. That's that's what you need, though. Any kind of Jap- like a Japanese role playing game or a tact- tactical role playing game, if you're going to get two pieces of music right, it's got to be the main theme and the overall map music yeah if you don't get those right you're in trouble <laughs> for sure shall we talk about a little bit about the sound sound design a little bit i found this a very stimulating clash because the game is looking it's, it's a very pastel bright look it's a terrifying and horrible war and the terror i think is mainly introduced through the sound design those Gatling guns and that, that mortar fire when they impact metal, the metal of your tank and and hit hit your troops, it sounds sounds like you're going into the meat into the meat grinder. You know, it sounds absolutely horrifying. I don't know if you guys ex- experienced that the, sa- the same, but I felt the sound design was extremely powerful. Yeah, no, I'll go along with that. I played it with headphones on, and it was uh, yeah, it brutal at times. Yeah. Those sections where your troops are basically pinned down, and when they leave their their cover, their their health will, will be drained almost instantly by by crossfire and 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 uh, chain gunfire and what have you. Yeah, and especially sometimes you know some of them are done for. Yeah, the thing that they they get really down for me is just when multiple guns are going off at the same time. Yeah, how erratic and terrifying that is so when it's just one one scout with their rifle and it's like bap 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 that's not too intimidating because you can you know subconsciously okay i can deal with this guy it's fine but when you've got like three you know three shock troopers all behind cover kind of taking shots at you and that like cacophony of noise that comes off of them is so much more threatening because it's all mixing together and, yeah. and it feels more erratic and random. 
Um, it, it feels like you've lost control of the situation, which is exactly what's actually happening. Um, you shouldn't be in a situation where free people are firing at you at once because yeah. for a lot of characters, that's death. Mm. Yeah, and, and overall, the whole sound design is just very active, I would uh, describe it, to contrast it with my favorite uh, tactical RPG or strategy RPG series, Fire Emblem. Uh, that's of course simulates more medieval type warfare compared to this the sound design in this game is very active and uh, it's also compounded by the rate constant radio chatter going on during battles uh, where both enemies and allies are heard chattering different uh, uh, comments over the radio and you can even if you pay attention to it you can even get some some good tips uh, from uh, captain Varath uh, or Varat, for example uh, that uh, she shouts in between uh, gunfire. So it's it's quite functional in that way as well. Okay, so um, moving on to gameplay. So it, it's fair to say, I think, that Valkyria Chronicles owes a lot to um, the classic idea of a tactics RPG. So I'm thinking Final Fantasy um, tactics and tactics ogre and all of that. Mm. But uh, the, the thing that it brings to the table, which is where the nightshade influence um comes from um is the idea of um taking a third person perspective when you take command of your troops so instead of moving the characters around like um pieces on a chessboard Mm. um you actually uh take over them real time uh, and you move them as you would any third person shooter and then you point and you aim and you shoot. Yeah. Um, now, all of this stuff is governed by um, action points. So you can only um, move. So, so you have this orange bar at the bottom of the screen that slowly shrinks in size um, as you run around. So you can only move a certain amount in any given turn. And you're only allowed to you know, fire, fire your weapon, use your first aid or what have you once per turn. So it's still very, very much a turn-based experience. Um, but yeah, this change of perspective and the way you control, I think for me, sells a feeling of threat and immediacy um, to the action. Like, yeah. it's very easy to become distant from your troops in a Fire Emblem or a, or a Tactics Ogre or a, a, a Final Fantasy Tactics. Yeah. You're just the, the, the master uh, puppeteering everything. But when, char- like, when characters fall in combat here, it's, it's totally your fault and you feel it. Um, yeah. But and, and also the inverse of that, the feeling of, like, targeting the enemy lining it up just right and like taking ownership over the shots fired rather than feeling like it's you know a roll of the dice and you had no control over events yeah like did did you guys feel that as well yeah it's an interesting mixture of dice rolling and and actual uh direct controlled aiming actually at face value the map Looks awfully boring, right? It's it's an actual map with symbols on it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Very very lovely, uh, it, it just sketched in a very lo- lovely manner. But it's still just a dull looking map. So whereas in let's say again like Fire Emblem, you at least see your little soldiers around it, and there's a landscape there and uh, what have you. But 
for some reason it didn't bother me at all even though it was quite, i found it a quite bold quite bold uh, bolder choice but it didn't bother me at all uh, while i was playing and as soon as you the effect is just never felt to satisfy as soon as you click on a symbol and you uh, assign uh, that unit for this particular turn the uh, sort of seamless zoom in on the map and all of a sudden you're behind the character and you're guiding them across the battlefield was just yeah, really exciting. I think it brought a level of excitement to uh, strategy RPGs that um, I haven't, yeah, I haven't experienced anywhere else. It's uh, maybe the XCOM games are a little uh, are the closest, but they're less. They're they're more, uh, you know, regular turn-based strategy games rather than uh, tactical mm. RPGs. Yeah, definitely. I mean, stuff like the headshots and things like that. There was that whole thing where it's like you could strategize perfectly but then completely blow it when down to your own so you know um fistedness when it comes to um actually taking the shot itself so i quite like that extra element of risk yeah i think the dice roll element is there in particular in the beginning when your troops uh generally their accuracy isn't very high so you can line up your shot perfectly and just miss it by a mile still uh, in many cases Mm. which is very frustrating i think the the more accurate your troops become the more accurately your shots actually line up with your with your visor except for some unit types that are have inherently bad accuracy like lances for example yeah. <laughs> they were they, especially in the last battle my lances were a constant source of yeah. frustration yeah you know you can actually just use the targeting button to tar- cycle through uh, available targets and shoot at them and think that there is nothing more to it than that but there is actually a, a real value to fine-tuning your shots like if you aim for a head especially uh you aim for it more in the middle you're more likely to hit it because let's say you you um move uh, you aim a little bit to the side with a machine gun uh, you'll see more shots fly off to the side when your accuracy is high uh, the only time when that doesn't happen is when your accuracy is low and some stray shots might actually hit the target that you were clumsily aiming besides <laughs> So it's it's a very interesting mix of uh, of dice rolling and actual manual targeting. I feel, unlike a lot of other games in this genre, it does a very good job of um, making the dice rolls feel fair. Because you know, XCOM is notorious for you know being like a point blank range, ninety percent chance of hitting. And then you fire, and then it misses entirely, yeah. and and it's just it's always frustrating. Whereas with Valkyria Chronicles, like your accuracy and whether you're hit or not varies depending on range. Mm. But if you're like right up close, like rifle aimed at head of yeah. the enemy, it will hit every single shot. Will hit, and that to me feels right. Like whenever I miss in this game, it feels okay. Like you know me trying to you know trying to try my luck with you know a sniper from way too far away just seeing if i can get a headshot and then missing and i'm like well fair enough like it was always yeah. uh, it was always um uh, uh, you know luck of the draw with that one um yeah and and yeah i think it does a good job of of kind of balancing that so it never feels too frustrating when you miss so let's um let's talk about some of the troops that you command on this battlefield. Um I'll just list out um all of the unit types. 
and then we can and then we can uh, discuss some of our favorite uses of these guys um, in some more detail but the unit types include the scouts who are fast on their feet um, but uh, will take more damage and don't do as much damage as some of the other unit types um, shock troopers who um, absorb quite a bit of damage and can do a lot of damage but can't move quite as fast as scouts can. Snipers who can barely move at all um, but uh, are having incredibly long range attacks and can be incredibly lethal. Um, engineers who can uh, remove mines, uh, fix uh, barriers and defences um, and most importantly can repair your tanks. And, um, and restock uh, supplies if you're a character. Restock ammunition. Really um, handy. Yes, absolutely. Lancers, who are your main um, anti-tank uh, units, um, who are equipped with these giant missile launcher type devices. Yeah. The, Lancer, the Lancer design is just great also. They're just basically knights uh, without horses. <laughs> yeah. And instead of carrying rocket launchers, they carry... Yeah, actual medieval lances that fire missiles from the tip. Then we have um, the um, Edelweiss, which is the heavy tank that um, Welkin will be commanding his troops from. Um, and then later on, um, uh, Shamrock is introduced, which is a lighter tank uh, piloted by Zaka. Um, so let's let's talk about some of our favorite uh, troops and how we combine them and use them together. Um, Simon, do do you have any like go to combinations or particular characters within um, these unit types that you kept kept going to? Well, as you know, I'm a a, a Jan fan, so I like to use the lancers whenever possible. Um, although they were frustrating at times, I think the key character class for me, especially later in the game, was how I ran my engineers about to make sure that everyone was stocked up with what they needed. Because I think when I first stopped getting stuck. Um, it was that I was just running out of, of ammunition and various bits and pieces and it made me realise that you had to be economical with the routes that your engineers took because I think as early on in the game I'd also relied heavily on the shock troopers which I think is, um, I don't know, it's a, a bit of a cul-de-sac ultimately because they are, they're quite limited um, but I don't think I had a particular favourite combination it was just knowing which scenario required which class to be promoted to the fore really i think there was you know there are some where obviously you're going to pile in the shock troopers where there were others where you were just going to get mowed down if you followed the same tactic um <clears throat> so it's been a while since i've played this i'm trying to think of particular missions but i know there were a few where you know i throw shock troopers for- forward and i just get absolutely mown down and you suddenly realize no i need to be using lancers in this situation and I think that the game does a good job of that. You know, it felt quite felt quite varied. I didn't think I had to. It wasn't like right. This is my strategy. I'm going to use this every single time. I felt like I had to shake things up. Same, same as uh, Simon. I think I used. I think all of the units were super useful uh, for for just specific uses, specific maps. Funny enough, because I didn't read up on the game, I just wanted to play it blank, so I didn't read any strategies beforehand, so I never figured out how useful the scouts could be, but I found them quite limited in use in the early maps, at least, where, uh, yeah, they just got killed too quickly, and the only perk I could think of them is that they could 
you know, bring um, bring a, a faraway troops uh, into this and sort of clear the fog of war out for me. But yeah, I just it, I felt like they were not not much of a help uh, beyond that. But as soon as I started buying more powerful. I, for scouts, I actually f- uh, focus uh, when upgrading their weapons, their their rifles. I focus on firepower, so they could start doling out more damage, and then be- they started to become very useful for me. But I never had my troops overloaded with scouts. I always had two scouts at max, and you know sometimes I send them on uh, lone missions to take take out certain spots and what have you. I always had one engineer uh, on deck, Carl. Carl Lanzat was his uh, name. He has a, had a Dutch uh, surname, and he looked uh, charmingly nerdy. Uh, so he was he was there all the time. And when he r- ran out on the field by himself, he started uh, cowering uh, and saying, uh, "Where are you guys? Where is everybody?" Yeah, he had a loneliness uh, sort of <laughs> debuff. And yeah, I mean, keeping most of the time, I actually kept my engineer firmly behind the Edelweiss and immediately started repairing when it started taking some heavy damage. And then whenever I needed some troops, uh, some lances, for example, to to do some more damage or a sniper to do some more damage in the same turn, I I ran towards them to sort of restock them. Uh, Of course, clear out the tank mines. Yeah, everybody was was useful, but I I actually, contrary to maybe most strategy guides that you read, I started to rely very heavily on the shock troopers uh, near the end game because I was a bit short on time in the end. I decided to forego all kinds of skirmish grinding and uh, a lot of that stuff just to, you know, because it's very time consuming to do uh, multiple skirmishes all the time. And I just didn't have the energy to take some of those maps on again, especially after clearing the, what was it, the Marbury Beach one. Doing that one again as a skirmish just sort of really uh, exhausted me. Uh, it's the one with all the uh, all the, the Gatling gun bunkers and the, and the beach uh, scenario, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I st- decided to forego all skirmishes and just go by my smarts only to get through the end game, <laughs> even though my troops were a little bit underleveled, maybe. But giving shock troopers, let's say, attack boosts and defensive boosts, and just letting them run out in the field and you know just run behind enemy tanks and, and mowing down on their radiators uh, they became really really useful for me uh just to let's say do a lot of damage with minimal means and uh yeah i came to really love the shock troopers it was rosie actually who uh laid waste to maximilian in the end in my uh in my game just by giving her defensive boost and a- attack boost and just running after him and keep on firing uh firing him uh, at him and doing ma- massive damage because my tanks uh, and their mortars uh, didn't do much damage to him at all for me um f- you know foregoing the popular advice on the internet which is just level up the scouts all the way and and, and let them run to the finish line. Um, I actually did. I, I favoured shock troopers as well, um, but for a different reason. Um, it was mainly because if if you if you position troops in a certain way, um, enemies can't help themselves but run out and mm. kind of chase after you. Yeah. And if you position shock troopers in such a way that they're behind bunkers and stuff like that, and they'll yeah. they'll start. You know, every every 
unit will start taking pot shots at um, enemies moving moving around. But shock troopers are particularly effective of just like mowing people down. Yeah. And a popular tactic for me was just like positioning shock troopers behind cover in such a way that it tempted enemies out, and then just watching them drop one by one as they tried to move forwards. Um, and I, I, yeah, I, I really favoured that tactic. And uh, Rosie and Jane, my masochist um, ladies, uh, masochist, sadist, <laughs> sadist. Sorry, uh, that's a different meaning. Um, the sadist ladies um, were, yeah, mowing people down. Um, yeah. I did, I did like partnering um, Alicia up with. Uh, is it Noice? No, 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 how do you Noice. pronounce his name? N O C E. Noice. Yeah. Noice. Noice. Yeah, mainly because he has a crush on Alicia and he gets um, bonuses for ah. being around Alicia all the time. I, I brought so him in become... uh, sometimes as well, but uh, I never realized that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they they become an effective um, scouting party because uh, they, yeah he he just um, is just way more effective when he's around her. Uh, but the one class that I barely used, if I'm being honest, is the Lancers. Um, I always had Largo in the party just so I could have his um, command point. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I tended to just kind of barrel through the front line with the Edelweiss and then just look backwards and fire uh, fire at the radiator of any tanks that I was up against. Um I, I think if I wanted to, I could probably master the Lancers a bit more uh, and realize their effectiveness in, in battle. But I always found the tank round way more accurate than the Lancers weapons. So. Yeah, the Lancers became good once I've, they've passed the, uh, the class up to elite status, I think. I used them quite a bit as well, like the Shock Troopers in the, in the final few missions. Uh, they were became very crucial because they were... Uh, Largo and Hector was the other Lancer I used, and Audrey, they did a ton more damage against uh, Jaeger's tank, for example, in the horrifying chapter 17, one of the most challenging chapters in the game for me. And they, and I was uh, using them ag- again against the Marmota uh, when it was firing its uh, special beam cannon <laughs> against their the, the gun turrets, the anti-tank turrets and the, the Gatling gun turrets. I was just taking them down with the Lancers uh, very effectively. Um, another um, element of combat is the special orders that Welkin can give out. And, and now I have to shamefully admit something, that the first time I played this game back in 2018, I played through the entire game without ever using the orders <laughs> once. Um, which, you know, playing it now, I'm like, how did I do that <laughs> because they're so they're so useful yeah. um but it was just this entire system that i completely ignored and i could have been you know buffing deep you know buffing my party's defense and their attack and all of this stuff um and i just wasn't doing it and um yeah i i really like this mechanic i i think um it's kind of there in place of uh, you know, certain mage characters that you have in JRPGs or tactics games like this where 
their 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 role is to buff party members and stuff like that. Whereas here it's just Welkin kind of um you know, raising everyone's morale and saying <laughs> basically saying, raise your defense as if like a, a true could you, all right, I I've got lead skin now. Uh, don't die, don't die. Proof. Yeah, to, don't die, everyone. Okay, order order received. Welkin. I, w- um, I wish it would have. I wish it would have told us sooner. Yeah, it's. It. I think this is a. This is a really a, a, an effective application of the kind of buff debuff uh, mechanism that you find in these kind of games. Yeah, they become so uh, useful in in certain situations, especially attack boosts and demolition boosts when you really had to take out certain units in uh, in one turn. You really wanted to make sure that they weren't alive by the next turn and they couldn't couldn't retaliate. I want to... Um, I put this later in the show notes just to give you some behind-the-scenes, everyone listening to this. Um, but I want to talk about it now because it feels more organic to me. Um, so there are some notorious difficulty spikes um, in this game. Um, most notably, um, Chapter 7 probably gets the the most coverage online, um, but there are several other points where the game just uh, ramps up the difficulty out of nowhere. You know, speaking personally, um, Chapter 7 still stands out as a real, um, even now having played the game several times, as a real nightmare to get through, um, just because of how easy it is for your characters to die. But like, how? How? I mean, how do you guys feel about it? Um, it it's it's something that um, has become a bit notorious uh, as the you know people have gone back to reevaluate this game. But yeah, how how do you guys feel about these difficulty spikes? They were annoying, but I think they're par for the course yeah. of these type of games. I think I've ever played a game where there isn't something like that i think that probably the th- because it, this is quite a unique experience to me at the time the you know the way the game's structured that maybe added a little more little more frustration it's like well what do i do here and i have to admit i did use guide online at one point <laughs> just just to get me past it i know that's really <laughs> lame but i think i remember like you know screaming into a pillow at one point chapter seven for example I'm not going to say like I steamrolled that one. I, it took me quite a lot of tries. But it, I, it's not like it's unclear on how to do it. You're get, being guided along pretty well. It's just like you have to go about it a kind of a specific way uh, if you don't want to get murdered. You know, it's almost like a little bit of a, of a puzzle more than the other, many of the other missions. I don't think they're great, but I, I, I'm inclined to agree with Simon that the path of the course for this genre. Mm. Um, so it, 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 I am kind of used to it. Yeah, it's 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 when you have to fight a, a boss, right? That yeah, in the, yeah, in, um, in, yeah. In in the the archetypical genre example is usually those maps where you have to face a certain boss characters that doesn't answer to the regular rules of the game. For some of these encounters, I can justify it as like, well, it would be a desperate scramble for the characters if they were actually in this situation. Yeah. Like when, when you know, Savara appears on the battlefield, that's a big change in the, the atmosphere of that battle. Like suddenly you're on the back foot yeah. and it should feel difficult. But at the same time, I think the, the problem with that, that scenario in particular is... It can be. It, it can literally. You can literally lose by slightly, and and it would be of no fault of your own. You just 
wouldn't have known at the time that it would be that lethal, but like slight, you know, positioning Welkin's tank in slightly the wrong way, and then having um, his, you know, Maximilian's tank move in a position where suddenly it can fire at your radiator, and then it's just game over, yeah. like, right straight away. <laughs> Those um, things and that just yeah. feels that feels too harsh a punishment. Um, and also the fact, like, uh, I didn't realize at first. Um, that the the back of the tank had you know lethal uh um lethal tank rounds as well as the front oh yeah so i i positioned i positioned the elder vice in such a way it was like oh well the the radiator's facing the back of it so i should be fine and then it just killed me straight away <laughs> game over and it's just yeah, yeah. it's also funny that you i've st- up until that point i was still playing the game like fire emblem like just restart the whole battle over again and only later i realized you can actually save mid battle and you don't have to start all all over again when your mission goes to crap so yeah at that point i was still like restarting the whole thing over again all the time and only later i I learned that it's it's very beneficial in this game when all things are going well and, and and the enemy has taken its turn and it's looking good to just save uh, mid map so you don't have to replay the large sections uh, again especially when uh, time constraints became more of an issue moving away from the kind of micro level mechanics and and talking more about the macro stuff do, i wanted to discuss kind of how uh, the game handles um leveling up and upgrading your troops and equipment when you're outside of combat um, and you're in, so the the game is presented in the form of this book. Um, you have the option to go to a tab called headquarters, and and in headquarters there are various different options, but um, the the two that you will be popping into the most is the R and D area and the training field. Um, so one thing I I really like about Valkyria Chronicles is that experience is distributed amongst a class rather than uh, individual people. So instead of you know leveling up Jane, uh, so she becomes a super powerful ch- shock trooper, you're actually leveling up all of the shock troopers all at once. Uh, so w- w- no matter what you if any of your troops die in combat or anything like that you'll always a- have access to shock troopers of a similar level yeah maybe um, it's good and- to good to mention that uh, you don't level up in the field but all the experience you gain from a mission you take to the training field and distribute it there Ab- absolutely yeah so you um we're, we're going to talk about the ranking system in the game but um at the end of missions um you get a score and that will dictate how much experience and how much currency you get at the end of that mission and then you spend it all in between missions um, and you can choose which classes you level up i tended to be egalitarian about the whole thing and leveled up everyone so they are around the same level but if you have a particular class that you favor, and I know a lot of experts just level up scouts way beyond everyone else mm. and just dominate troops with those guys, you can do that if you really want to. I prioritize the scouts, shock troopers, and snipers. 
Yeah. But I, I, I didn't leave the engineers and the lancers too far behind. You know, they were usually like one or two levels behind the rest. I wanted to level up the shock troopers first just because of my aff- aforementioned tactic. But I, I couldn't leave anyone lagging behind. Um, mm. If everyone was level nine, apart from engineers, I would have to, I'd have to do it. I can't. <laughs> everyone needs equal treatment. Uh, but you know, I, I feel like this, this, this choice. I think it's designed to make the permadeath of the game, which we haven't touched on yet. Um, mm. The permadeath of the game hit um, a little more softly. I think it's very easy in a game like Fire Emblem to have your favorite characters and them to be leveled really, really high. You lose them, and then there's just a vacuum that never gets filled. Whereas with um, Valkyria Chronicles, you mourn the loss of that character from like a narrative story perspective, but you don't mourn them mechanically. Um, it's very easy to swap in shock troopers and and um, you know every other unit with another person of that class and not feel like you're being left behind. Um, every 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 sniper is as powerful as every other sniper. So really, when you when you feel particularly bad about a character dying on the field, it is literally because you really like the personality of that character. And I, I I like that. I, I actually like that. I think that's be- a better, almost a better way of handling it, really emphasizing the narrative impact rather than the mechanical and, and making you, you know, that feeling of loss, really focusing it on the character themselves rather than their, you know, mechanical position in your army. I think as well, you know, we mentioned how well paced the story is. I think if we'd have... If they'd have chosen for the for us to level up each individual character, it completely undermine the pacing of the game. <clears throat> I know in yeah. previous TRPGs that I played, Tactics Ogre is a good example. In the original games, you would upgrade unit by unit, and it would it adds hour hour upon hour onto the game. And then when they did the re-release of that in two thousand and ten, they moved to this system, and it improved the pacing tenfold. Um, so I think it was a good decision, purely from a from a from a pacing perspective. The other upgrade mechanic is the R and D facility, where you uh, use the currency that you get from missions in the exact same way you get XP. You can use that currency to spend on weapon upgrades. Um, early on, they're pretty simple. It's just you know a better version of the previous one. Um, but as the game goes along, you start to you know. Being, you start to be able to go down these different tech trees and focusing on either accuracy or damage or uh, things of unique properties. And then even later on, um, you get these secondary weapons um, for your classes. So uh, shock troopers get flamethrowers, uh, scouts get grenade launchers. Um, and yeah, and, and the, the, there is a degree of being able to kind of customize um, the utility of certain troops. So you're not locked into one tech tree branch. Um, you can both upgrade uh, the damage output weapons and the accuracy ones and the status effect ones. So you can have um, you can have like a unit of shock troopers where you know like Rosie focuses on damage, or or Jane focuses on accuracy, and yeah. and and Vance focuses on just like debuffing the enemies. And you can have these varieties 
negative effects, which I I really found really useful. Um, with snipers in particular, um, I like giving them debuff uh, weapons because even if you couldn't take them out in one shot, you could guarantee that that unit was at half health and was doing a lot less damage to to your team. Um, mm, you know, that's an interesting tactic, yeah. Yeah. I solely focused on accuracy for the snipers because they frustrated me in the beginning with how many shots they were missing. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. But the um the the other thing is um the tank tank Tetris as I like to call it. Um so the the Edelweiss and the Shamrock, you can you can upgrade parts of it much like you do with weapons, it's just simply like damage accuracy, etc. Um mm. but the, you also have these parts that are um, uh, basically, these blocks that you fit into a grid, and you basically you make decisions on what you want to prioritize. Do you want to prioritize defense? Do you want to prioritize accuracy? Do you want to prioritize the, the treads for whatever reason, making sure they're well defended? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and um, how how do you guys feel about that? Um, it's probably the, the area of the game I actually feel most conflicted about in terms of the upgrade side of it. Like, yeah. how did you find Tank Tetris? It feels lim- limiting very quickly, right? Yeah, yeah. It helps that they're just kind of buffs on top of the regular upgrades to the tank, so that it's not solely defined by uh, by the, the Tetris grid. But uh, yeah, it, it felt a bit too limiting for for my taste. Yeah, no, sorry, no, I I agree. I found it quite limiting. I, I think it was I, I enjoyed the characters though. Yeah, welcome, bro. The guys who worked in the yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think one of one of them ends up um, driving a tank, doesn't it? He ends up uh, rescuing uh, Alicia and welcome in the plane at the end. It's like welcome, bro. Yeah, He's flying yeah, yeah. in at the end. I had I had such a good chuckle out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think for me the, the tank Tetris, um, it was fine to begin with when the blocks are small, but mm. I became really irritated that you couldn't rotate the yeah. blocks. So yeah, certain, I, I, certain were always horizontal, the other ones are always aligned vertically. Yeah. Yeah, it really, really frustrated me because I feel I felt like I could have the exact build that i want if i could only rotate these pieces but because you're not allowing me to i have to make these compromises that i don't want to do like i have to use this little tiny block to squeeze in that space just because yeah uh, that's all i could do with that and and it doesn't it doesn't do much for effect it would have been nice actually if you could start upgrading your tetris grid so that it would would become bigger uh, like the uh, resident evil 4 suitcase you know which becomes bigger uh, later on in the game so you could add more blocks to it and have have more more effects but sadly that wasn't yeah i think that's uh, was a little bit of a missed uh, missed opportunity there i want to read these two posts from the forum um so first of all the the emailer says this game is a re- really unique take on war with a beautiful art style and full of surprises. The gameplay was an engaging mashup of strategy and third person shooting that drew me in. However, my enjoyment of the gameplay was mired by the ranking system linked to rewards. 
It puts speed of completion ahead of unit survival, so it encourages the player to rush rather than plan coherently. In the end, due to the difficulty curve, I ended up using guides for the top ranks and reloading saves when turns didn't go to plan. This is not by any means a fun way to play the game. And then uh, Reprobate Gamer says, This game gets so much right. The graphics are gorgeous. The gameplay is a good blend of shooting and strategy. And the characterization is, was great. The first few levels give a great introduction to how the game plays with a decent difficulty curve. And there is a reasonably broad mixture of scenarios then you realize that the game basically wants you to ignore everything taking place and speed run it and torpedoes the whole thing each level finishes with a battle report styled score sheet and despite all the entries for killing key figures the only important result is your speed rank and the speed required will mean that any choices you would make based on character relationships or any of the fairly detailed world building is ignored to essentially power a scout to the finish line it's a turn-based endless runner I've never completed this game and never will as a result. I don't have a specific objection to the number of turns taken being a factor in your score, but to know that you can't get top rank for playing the game as a strategy game rather than trying to find the correct route to reach the objective, especially as this seems to require save scumming if the RNG is against you, means that I'm not encouraged to play. I find it telling that the anime based on this was far more concentrated on the characters than any war scenes, and the fairly poor reception every other version has received would suggest that I'm not alone in having issues with the game. I have watched the Let's Play on this, and the story does have a good ending, but I just can't get over the dissonance between the story beats and the way that the game needs to be played. Now, I will just immediately counter and say I don't find the ranking system to be nearly as destructive to the experience as uh, Retrobate Gamer, um, uh, his experience of, of it has been for his, his run through the game. Um, but it is, it is slightly depressing to me that the ranking system is based on speed alone yeah. rather than any kind of tactical play. Um, it... <sighs> I don't think it really impacted the game. It is a shame that you know experience and and currency is also tied to the the rank that you get at the end. But I, you know, personally speaking, um, and I can only talk from my own experience, it never really had a destructive impact on my ability to upgrade my troops or progress through the game. How about how about you two? Um, it's hard for me to be objective about it because I'm I'm ne I've never been a perfectionist when it comes to games and this is such a secondary element of the game to me it's like I'd finish the game and I'd just be happy finish a level I'd be happy I finished it and I'd see the ranking like well okay I scraped through it was only when I played through the second time that it, I really understood what was going on because I was because I knew knew what to do I was able to complete the level so much quicker uh and it was like, oh yeah, I've got through through to the next level, uh, and I've got a better rating. Great. So I don't really think much about the, uh, the, the rating, the you know the rankings, the end of levels. It was just you know it's just I always see those some 
as being something there for someone who wants to perfect their you know their their gameplay playing the game it's not so i no, <laughs> i don't it's hard for me to really have an opinion on it because it's so secondary to to me um i just want to um talk about the rest of the kind of uh, headquarters options um you also have um the audience hall where you can uh talk to uh cordelia who will give you medals um which is kind of the in-game achievement system in this game um which can be accompanied by the special weapons that you can equip to your units well, another option was the castlefront <laughs> street um, this is uh, where you meet up with um, Irene Ellett, who's, but, but you know, is actually the narrator of this game. Um, yeah. The book that um, the book that this the 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 game is um, on the Galleon the, front. Yeah, mm. that the uh, the whole game is based on is written by her. How do we feel about the, uh, this whole section of the game? Um, I'll be honest, I barely checked in with her either. I did. I think yeah. I- I was invested enough to find that any kind of extra sort of exposition was added to the enjoyment of the experience. Um, and I think because she's the narrator, I kind of felt that I should do. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't want to miss out on anything. <laughs> yeah, I also, I, I checked it just to quickly, you know, uh, speed read the, uh, the, the, the newspaper articles uh, that uh, she published. But I uh, definitely uh, bought her books um but it took me actually a long while to find out how you could access those books like i was waiting for some notification to pop up and i saw those blue tabs but i didn't know how to get there till i started going into chapter select and then uh seeing it and then lastly there's the graveyard where you can meet um an old veteran um is he named um i've i've forgotten is he uh is he a named character, or is he literally just the veteran in the he's, graveyard? He's called the the aged aged gentleman. He he doesn't have aged an actual gentleman. name, but he seemed okay. to know uh, Welkin's father. Yeah. So basically, yeah, that's all you know about him. Really, is that he was a veteran from the first uh, European war, and um, you can you know walk walk to the graveyard and uh, get some special orders from him, and base you know basically. Most of the best orders in the game come from this guy. Um, but I got extremely annoyed that every time I visited there, he would say, nothing today. And it felt like almost every time I went there, it was nothing today. But I had to keep going there just on the off chance that he would have some order, some special orders for me. Um, did you guys like this? I, 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 It kind of annoyed me, if I'm being honest. Yeah, it's a little. It was a little bit of a clumsy way of uh, handling your your special uh, special orders, getting your special orders. It was a bit clumsy, but it's like I, I twigged on to how useful the orders were. So I kind of thought, well, more orders meant more of an advantage for me, particularly later yeah. on in the game. And and it's kind of a, kind of random which orders he's uh, he uh, has up for sale uh, to teach you, right? Yeah. Like uh, every every playthrough, yeah. he will give you different orders at different times. So yeah. It's uh, not not something you can really rely on and getting a certain order at a certain point. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting little thing. Maybe could have handled it a little bit differently. Let's hear from the, the forum. Um, Steve Aran um, says, Valkyria Chronicles is one of those games I can remember reading about back when we got all of our gaming info in print rather than via the internet. 
The PlayStation magazine to which I subscribed was particularly glowing about this game. But being a penniless teenager at the time, it was one of those experiences that I let slip by. When I noticed it was coming up on Cane and Rinse, I knew this was the perfect opportunity to rectify this mistake. Initially, I was charmed. The pastel colours of the cel-shaded graphics filled me with the warm fuzzies. They reminded me of the simpler times when I had first read those reviews. However, that cosy feeling was soon jolted out of me upon seeing Imperial soldiers mercilessly gun down refugees within the opening minutes of the game. I realised then that whilst this may be as JRPG as it gets, this title was not going to shy away from the grim realities of war. And retrospectively, I can see this is where some of my problems with the game began. To take the positive first, I love the design of this world. Pathetic as it sounds, I thought the maps of the opening cinematics did a really good job of grounding you in a totally believable world. You could see why Gallia was the main front of the war due to its geographical position and the skirmishes occurring within its borders made sense from a tactical standpoint. Call me a nerd, but it really takes me out of the game when world design comes from a more aesthetic perspective and therefore towns and cities and even entire nations are designed with little account into the cultures that would develop there due to differing environmental factors. The Witcher 3 is a great example of this done right. Um, Gallia's almost French Riviera-style architecture and turn-of-the-century clothing did a great job of helping me identify with the Gallians. It made me understand what I was fighting to preserve. After all, this place is lovely. The army defending this nation is a delight also. I love the steampunk aesthetic of the entire corpse and personally feel that the visual design of the main cast is far more successful in distinguishing individuals than any character traits that they were endowed with in the script. In my opinion, the only design misstep comes in the forms of Princess Cordelia and Minister Borg. They look like they're out of a completely different time zone from a completely different game, more mythical or medieval than 19th century steampunk. Gameplay-wise, I enjoyed the twist on visual turn-based JRPG strategy, but felt the game did a poor job in relaying how some of the systems worked. I spent two-thirds of the game using the same weapons which I had from the start. I obviously hadn't paid attention to the cinematic, which told me I could change them all up. My bad, of course, but it did somewhat hamper my enjoyment when battles were taking hours to complete. My favourite tactic by the end was running right up to an enemy as a scout and shooting them at point-blank range. This led to some rather repetitive gameplay, which may have been avoided had I realised I had access to a greater arsenal. I really wanted to like this game, and I don't know if that's because I want to do right by the reviews in the PlayStation magazine from when I was a kid, but if I'm honest, and I've spent ages trying to write a balanced review, I found the gameplay repetitive and the characters bland. I will hold up my hands and say that this may well be because I messed up with the weapon selection aspect, 
and I experienced the title in an extremely condensed period of time. I completed it in about a week, and in retrospect, I think it would have been more enjoyable had I played it, uh, played a chapter per night. Therein lies the rub. I enjoyed it enough to finish, but found the final third enough of a slog that I just wanted to get to the end. I even peeked at a walkthrough to find out how to cheese the final boss, as I couldn't face having to go and grind. For me, the way I feel about Valkyria Chronicles can be perfectly summed up with the metaphor of the Mission Select book. The completionist in me loved ticking off each panel and uh, bringing colour to the sepia-tinged pages. Um, but the guy who loves pacing and story structure was left irritated by the fact that the game never gave itself the chance to build up any momentum. Okay. Nup Raptor says, This was a great Wii game. I don't say Wii to be dismissive. The game itself is epic, just that it was a relatively niche title. I was really taken by the beautiful art style and really enjoyed getting to play through a fictional anime interpretation of World War One and Slash 2. I found the characters and their relationships engaging and had a real sense of ownership of them. It was great to nurture them, watch them carry out daring assaults, and above all else, try to avoid them being shot to bits by Imperial tanks. It was exhilarating when one of my manoeuvres was successful, or when one of my favourite characters pulled off a particularly heroic raid. For whatever reason, this grabs me much more than the Fire Emblem series, which I guess would be its closest modern competitor. Playing through a great fun strategy game with a cartoon anime art style took me back to one of the first games to really hook me, Shining Force on the Mega Drive. If any of the Valkyria Chronicles team at Sega want to do a Shining Force update in the Valkyria Chronicles style, then I would be delighted. But until then, I'm eagerly anticipating the upcoming Valkyria Chronicles 4. So Magical Isopod on a forum writes, Valkyria Chronicles was my game of the year for 2008. And 2008 was a darn good year for games. I was so hyped for this one that I pre-ordered it. The majority of the game on my personal top 100 list are there for strong narrative or strong audiovisual design. Valkyria Chronicles stands apart from most of my favorites in that my strongest love for it comes from the mechanics. The narrative is compelling enough to push you through the game, the characters are perfectly fine, and while the art design and music are outstanding, the game just wouldn't be what it is without the core mechanics. I'm typically not fond of either tactical games nor military themes, so my closest point of reference for what makes Valkyria so good is Final Fantasy Tactics. Even though the plane of movement is a full 3D environment that utilizes X, Y and Z planes of each level very well, it still feels a bit like a chess match. Where you move your soldiers matters. Where you place your shots matters. Where you leave your soldiers idle before ending your turns matters. You have a ragtag crew of oddball troops and it's not hard to get attached to them. I'm sure every fan has their own personal favorite. You have a set of diverse classes that all have valuable roles in combat, although one could certainly argue the scout class renders the sniper class rather useless, especially late game. The combat can be very difficult, with several levels acting as barriers to progress until you master the mechanics, or think of unorthodox solutions the developers may not have accounted for. But there's something special about how the game gathers these individual pieces and pastes them together that's a little harder to qualify. When you lose a battle, you know why. Your brain immediately jumps to, into how could I approach this map differently next time mode. 
and you want to keep trying new strategies. In one level, after losing several times in a row, I thought, that tank that spawns in after 5 turns is a pain. What if I spend my move points getting my tank behi behind where it spawns and shoot its engines out before it can hurt me? And that actually worked. Compared to something like Bloodborne, where I feel like the game is deliberately trying to break and demoralize me until I grind out arbitrary points to boost my character's math numbers, I feel like Valkyria Chronicles is like a Canadian football match, where each attempt at a play is pushing the ball further and further upfield, until you're finally able to get over the hump and go for the end zone. When you know how to play the battlefield right, when you can see that victory just over the horizon, you feel this power rush that's hard to put in words. You feel like a god in a machine, a cat in a fish farm. It's a sense of empowerment that very few games can match. In few words, I'd say it's a bit like a turn-based anime Doom 2016. And in that way, the game is very special. The large maps and epic scope of this particular title have not been matched by its technically limited PSP sequels, so I'm eager to see what trials the forthcoming fourth entry may bring. Okay, Colin Alonso says, uh, When I first played Valkyria Chronicles, I lived with three housemates who had varying levels of interest in gaming. Some games might get looks from the rest of the house, but the striking, almost watercolour anime style of Valkyria Chronicles drew more interest than usual. Often bright and colourful, but not afraid to mix it with the browns of war, it easily caught the eye and the guys would often sit down and watch me play. The plot, while not spectacular, stayed interesting over the course of the game, helped by how likeable both the main characters and the rest of Squad 7 are. The main characters have plenty of screen time, but I also got attached to many of the other soldiers in the squad through their individual designs and voices and their backstories in the game's book mode. I cared enough to make sure that none of them would die on the battlefield. As a Greek, we would laugh at lines like Susie's screams of, I'm a pacifist, whenever she attacked, and grow attached to characters' quirks like Jan's campiness or Jane, Jane's love of violence. All this would be enough to keep me playing, but thankfully the gameplay is a wonderful mix of turn-based strategy and real-time action that melds together really well. Advancing through battlefields while ensuring that you are defensively sound is a tactical loop that I really enjoyed. The five separate classes are useful from the start, and some gain useful secondary weapons or abilities during the game. The game also puts additional obstacles or quirks to some missions, whether that is nighttime stealth missions or the infamous surprise pincer attack to avoid becoming stale. Needless to say, it had some support regarding strategy from the others watching, but often I would be allowed to work strategy out myself. Warning shouts for landmines were greatly appreciated though. There are a few flaws to the gameplay, scouts are a bit overpowered, and the ranking system is solely based on the number of elapsed turns, which emphasises speed over everything else, but these flaws were not enough to detract from the game or rule for me. A few months after I finished the Valkyria Chronicles, the housemate with the least interest in gaming nonchalantly walks over to the PS3, fires it up and starts a new game without saying a word. Once I got over the surprise of that, we watched him play almost as much as they watched me first time around. When we finished our year living in that house, three of us had completed the game. Despite also playing multiplayer crowd pleasers such as Mario Kart and Pro Evolution Soccer, my abiding memory of video games with the guys in that house is the Valkyria Chronicles, an entirely single player, niche, wonderful strategy game. Thank you to um, everyone who contributed to the forum. If you want to have your posts read out uh, on the podcast, please head over to com slash forum and find the re relevant thread about upcoming issues. Um, now, let's move on to our free word reviews. Um, if you want your free word review read out on the podcast, just you know, keep an eye out um, every week and you'll uh, see on our Twitter feed, so uh, at Kane and uh, Rinse, we'll do a call out for free word reviews and then uh, shoot them our way once you see that. Um, so yeah, 
Mikhail, take it away. Pascal Wagner says, Big Blue Boobies. Uh, Magical Isopod says, Tactical Power Trip. Ben Monroe says, Lovely Looking Windmills. Borg of Prophecy. Thank you, Sega. Lane Boy Advance says, War in Watercolour. Ben Parry says, Endearingly Earnest Endeavours. And Ashley Day says, Turn-Based Triumph. Uh, thank you, everyone who uh, contributed a free word review. All that's left now is for our summaries. Mikhail, let's start with you. You know, I've always been on the lookout for my holy grail of tactical RPGs or strategy RPGs. And I think the closest they've come were Fire Emblem, Path of Radiance and Radiant Dawn, the, the double whammy on GameCube and, and Wii. But those games have aesthetical issues i feel like with the the, the sort of uh, pr- primitive 3d models uh, on the battlefield i th- always had the feeling that from when i first laid eyes on it uh, valkyria chronicles would be my holy grail just looking at the aesthetics only the the art style and the interesting mix of uh, of systems coming away from it i didn't love it as much as I thought I would uh, be. So the hunt is still on for uh, my, for my holy grail in this uh, genre. And my main two issues are the level- leveling system and uh, the ranking system. But they're not such huge issues that that they stop me from loving this game all all for its for its own quirks and its its own specifics. And I think Valkyria Chronicles is a is a fantastic game. Maybe not to the level that I wanted it to be, but still fantastic. And I've, yeah, it's it's one of those games that I've forged a really intimate relationship with over the the last months that I've been playing it. Uh, in in a way, I've robbed myself of an experience by kind of brute forcing the end game just to 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 get it done in time. So because I really liked actually the experimentation that you could do in tackling maps in a in a different way, but I've also didn't completely rob myself of the experience because although I've looked at walkthroughs, I just couldn't be bothered following the step-by-step breakdowns of those maps. It was horribly boring to me. So usually I just use them as sort of a good starting position. And then I sort of took over the direction of the battles in those in those last maps and figured things started figuring out things out for myself and planning on the fly. Because I couldn't rely on uh, on them late game anyway because they made certain assumptions about about uh, class levels and, and certain perks that I might not have unlocked uh, before. So chapter 17, for example, was a huge blockade for me yesterday. Um, and it, it was a really harrowing map with uh, General Jaeger's tank, which was nigh indestructible, moving around and those camps, just were, which were restocking soldiers one after another. It took me such a long time to clear it, but the satisfaction that I got from it was massive. Just figuring out on my uh, my wits, figuring out campaigns and and uh, and strategies and, and changing them on the fly, depending on how the situation was turning, uh, which which enemy camps I was going for before I could take on uh, on the tank. And this is one of the the big things that I take away from it. And coupled with the aesthetics, and we haven't even mentioned. The, the 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 comic book style onomatopoeia in there um, and just the general likability of the universe and the characters in there it's a very special game to me and yeah I've 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 definitely grown to 
to love it, even though it's still not my perfect strategy RPG. Valkyrie Chronicles isn't a perfect game. It's got a number of flaws, but ultimately it's a game with a big heart, really warm characters, and it's also one of the most beautiful games to look at ever ever made. Um, I think if you want sort of a, a tonic to gritty western takes on this genre, this is the game for you. It is unique and pretty special and uh, definitely one of the best games of that particular generation i love valkyria chronicles and um for me it's it's been a shame to see um like i i was frustrated with how um the ps3 game sold um because it meant that the sequels ended up on psp and that's not particularly where i wanted to play those games and plus i just i felt let down by the psp games um or at least i only played the second one i never got to uh, experience the third one for um you know for the fact that it didn't come out over here um but like just i i think you know moving away from this art style and and this kind of tone, um, it really put me off. And um, um, I, I just think this game is timeless visually. And I love Welkin. Welkin forever. Uh, I'll <laughs> get a tattoo of Welkin. Uh, he's the best. Um, and yeah, I just, I, it's, it's just from a play perspective. Apart from the difficulty spikes that we mentioned, it's probably, you know, it's one of my favorite examples of the genre. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think it's aged a day. I think it's uh, it's phenomenal. So yeah, um, that all it all that remains is for me, Josh, to thank McKeel, Simon, and and all of our correspondents, uh, and especially Editor Jay for this one. Uh, thank you for your hard work, Jay, on this one. Um, and um, all that's left for me to say is. Uh, uh, just a reminder, please, um, if you can, uh, subscribe, rate, and review us on all your favorite podcast apps. We have a Patreon. Um, one of the uh, extra features you get if you join the Patreon is an unabridged version of uh, a particular podcast. Uh, this will almost certainly be one of them, uh, given the length of the current recording. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, you'll you'll get access to exclusive monthly mini casts with Leon and Jay, and um, you'll get first dibs on the console specials. Uh, next time in issue 334, Leon will introduce us to a different kind of conflict as we launch into the fluorescent blue skies of Rezogun. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>